So we're going to continue to journey with Jesus through the Gospel of Luke and listen to the parables that he tells along the way. This morning's parable is a perfect parable for Super Bowl Sunday. As we get our feasts ready, as we think about who we're going to invite over to our house and who we're going to celebrate with, wait, as we think about our sadness that we will be watching the game alone in our homes and not inviting anyone over or celebrating with others, this is a parable still for us. It's a parable about hospitality and not just the hospitality that takes place around a shared meal. As we gather and collect our hearts to listen to the word of the Lord, I want to invite you to pray with me. Lord, may your word be our rule, your spirit, our teacher, and the glory of Jesus, our single concern. So come, O Lord. In the name of Jesus, we pray. Amen. I invite you to do whatever you need to do to listen well to these words from the book that we love. One Sabbath... When Jesus went to share a meal in the home of one of the leaders of the Pharisees, they were watching him closely. A man suffering from an abnormal swelling of the body was there. And Jesus asked the lawyers and the Pharisees, does the law allow healing on the Sabbath or not? But they said nothing. So Jesus took hold of the man, healed him, And let him go. And he said to them, Suppose your child or ox fell into a ditch on the Sabbath. Wouldn't you immediately pull it out? But they had no response. Now when Jesus noticed how the guests sought the best seats at the table, he told them this parable. When someone invites you to a wedding celebration, don't take your seat in the place of honor. Someone more highly regarded than you could have been invited by your host, and your host, who invited both of you, will come and say to you, give your seat to this other person. And embarrassed, you'll take your seat in the least important place. Instead, when you receive your invitation, go and sit in the least important place. And then your host approaches you, he will say, friend, move up here to a better seat. Then you will be honored in the presence of all your fellow guests. All who lift themselves up will be brought low, and those who make themselves low will be lifted up. Then Jesus said to the person who had invited him, When you host a lunch or dinner, don't invite your friends your brothers and sisters, your relatives, your rich neighbors. If you do, they will invite you in return, and that will be your reward. Instead, when you give a banquet, invite the poor and crippled, the lame and blind, and you will be blessed because they can't repay you. Instead, you will be repaid when the just are resurrected. The word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. Amen. Now, I don't know if you knew this. It's a little known uh, 
biblical studies fact, but Luke is actually a gospel written for Jersey. I'm not sure if you knew that, but it's for us. So much of the action in it, more than in any other gospel, takes place around food on a table. Jesus is always eating or drinking with someone. Hospitality is one of the main settings for the action of the Gospel of Luke. And when Luke describes the kingdom of God, he describes it like a lavish New Jersey wedding. This is a gospel for us, friends. It's our kind of book. And the whole story culminates at the end with a meal around a table in the village of Emmaus when Jesus takes a small act of hospitality and turns it into a glimpse of heaven when he shares communion with two disciples whose eyes are opened. So many of Luke's stories take place around a table with the sharing of food with one another. This morning's parable is no different. Jesus is invited to home, the home of one of the leaders of the Pharisees to celebrate a meal one Sabbath. And it's there that we get this week's parable. Parable? Luke calls it a parable, but it doesn't really look like a parable, does it? It really just looks like good advice offered to the Pharisees and the lawyers, the legal experts. But if Luke calls it a parable, we need to look again. We need to think more deeply about what Jesus says and how it may tell us something of the kingdom of God. The conflict over the Sabbath is the backdrop of the parable. So let's see how what Jesus tells us will tell us something about what it means to be, first, a good guest, and second, a good host. First, a good guest, and second, a good host. First, the good guest. The surface lesson of that part of the parable is that you shouldn't take the seat of honor, but that you should go and sit in a lesser place and let the host come and invite you closer. It's plain enough advice in a culture where your place at the table and your proximity to the host was an important reflection of your status within the community and where the wedding was the most important Social gathering. When you go to a feast, it's best not to presume upon your place that you might be one of the important people. Don't go and sit next to the host in one of those places of high honor. How embarrassing would it be if the host had to come and ask you to move because someone higher up than you had shown up and you now had to go and sit at one of those far tables in the back corner with bad service. Better to start out at the kids' table down at the bottom rung and let the host come and find you and ask you to come sit closer. Then you'll be the talk of the party. But Jesus ends pointing us to the deeper meaning of this parable. All who lift themselves up will be brought low and all who make themselves low will be lifted up. I had to think for a long time this week about how that statement connected to the Sabbath. But once you see the connection, it's obvious. So what's the Sabbath? What is the Sabbath for? How do you keep the Sabbath? 
Well, Jesus and the Pharisees have been butting heads about this for quite a while in the Gospel of Luke. And this is actually the last time they'll share a Sabbath meal together to talk about it. And as they invite Jesus along for this Sabbath meal, they're keeping a close eye on him. Under the surface, there's animosity in the language built in. They're watching him closely. They're waiting for him to mess up, to do something to confirm all that they already knew was true about him so they could just cancel him and get it over with. They even seem to have uh, baited him into it, inviting this man with edema into the lunch as they're celebrating to see if Jesus will heal him and break their Sabbath rules. For them, keeping the Sabbath is all about avoiding the long list of things you can't do on the Sabbath, on Saturday, their seventh day. Keeping the Sabbath has become an end in and of itself. You don't do this stuff to keep the Sabbath, and you keep the Sabbath to keep the Sabbath. That's really as far as it goes. And so Jesus asks them this question, pushing in. Is it lawful to heal on the Sabbath or not? Would they rescue their own child or ox if it fell into a ditch on the Sabbath? And with each question, they don't answer. And I think they don't answer because they don't have a good answer. Because for them, there isn't really an answer. Either you heal the man or rescue the child and break the Sabbath rules, which means you break the fourth commandment, which means you break the law, which they have gone to extreme efforts to keep. And that's a commendable desire on their part. Or on the other hand, you keep the Sabbath rules and prolong this man's suffering. There is no good answer for them. And Jesus, by asking this question, backs them into that corner to show them that they're thinking about the whole thing wrong. That if there is no answer to that question, if you're stuck in that situation, then you must be asking all the wrong questions. Keeping the Sabbath isn't just about what you can't do on the Sabbath. A better question is, what is the Sabbath for Why did God give us the gift of Sabbath? If it's not for its own sake, then why is it? And it isn't until you understand that that you can begin to understand how to keep it. The Sabbath comes to us in the fourth commandment out of the Ten Commandments. Remember the Sabbath day and keep it holy. We're told there that God created the whole world in six days and rested on the seventh, therefore setting it aside as holy. And so we should do likewise. Work six days and rest on the seventh to keep it holy and set apart. Sabbath itself means stop, cease. But again, there's so much more because Sabbath is not just an absence. It's not just an empty space where we don't do things. The medieval rabbi Rashi said that Sabbath is actually God's final creation. That in it, God isn't making an empty space, but is filling this sphere with delight and celebration and rejoicing in all that God has made. That the Sabbath is an invitation to come and revel in what God has given us in a good creation. That we come and remember that it is all gift 
You know, you start working long enough and hard enough and you start to think that what you have is yours and a result of your work. But it's not. It's a gift. Everything we have came because someone else gave us something else. It is all a gift. God stopped to enjoy creation on the seventh day and to create this space one day in seven where we can stop and enjoy it too. The Sabbath, though, is about more than just rejoicing. It also requires trust that God will continue to provide. It takes a lot of faith as a farmer to stop working one day a week. These were all farmers, and without refrigeration and freezers and grocery stores, the stakes are life and death. There is always more necessary work to be done. God knows this, and still, God commands them to stop. That practice shapes within you a humility. It forces you to realize that everything we have is a gift and to trust that God will continue to give those gifts. To trust that we are more than we produce and that we can actually give up our anxious striving to be more than we are. Practicing the Sabbath shapes us into the kind of people who can be dependent, who can admit that we are not the creator, that we are not gods, but creatures of the creator God who made us and provides that we can't save the world. We can't save ourselves. And we don't have to. It shapes us into humility. From the Latin humus, meaning soil, dirt. It will shortly be Ash Wednesday and we'll remember you are dust and to dust you will return. That we were made from the dirt of the earth as God shaped and formed it and breathed life into our lungs and we now rely upon God for everything. Sinking back down into that dirt, the humus and humility, giving up our endless anxious attempts to hover six feet above it, to strive to make ourselves, provide for ourselves, be everything to everyone, be like God. This humility instead is the best news we could possibly hear because we don't need to be like God. All who lift themselves up will be brought low. All who make themselves low will be lifted up. In the Sabbath, we find that God is our generous host, that God invites us to come and sit at God's table. And as we come, we give up striving to find the best seats, the most honor, to scratch and claw for the ever-elusive enough. We give it all up. We go and sit at the kids' table and have fun. We empty ourselves just as Christ did when he came. And as Paul says in that Christ hymn of Philippians 2, it's there at the absolute bottom of emptying and humility that God also highly exalted him to give him the name that is above every name. And we would do well to do likewise. The Sabbath's not about the list of things you can't do. The Sabbath is God's gracious hospitality extended to us. God creates space to be what we are. 
dependent creatures who rely upon a good and generous God. And keeping the Sabbath means humbly coming and receiving these generous gifts. And if that's the case, then what better day to heal a man, to allow the kingdom of God to break into his life and make him whole than on the Sabbath? And if that's the case, then the Sabbath meal is not a place to jockey for position and status and power and belonging into the inner circle, but it's a party to gather and celebrate and rejoice and delight in all that God has given us that we cannot gain for ourselves. I said this parable would help us learn what it is to be good guests, not just at a Super Bowl party, but in all of life. God is our gracious and generous host, and the way in which we receive that generosity is humility, is giving up striving to be more than we are, is learning to depend on the God who provides and cares for us. We empty ourselves as Jesus did. All who lift themselves up will be brought low, and all who make themselves low will be lifted up. But this parable isn't just about being a good guest. It also has a lot to tell us about what it means to be a good host. Because Jesus doesn't just talk to the guests. He then turns and talks to the host and says, don't invite these sorts of people. Jesus has looked around. The other people there are the other rich and important people in town. This, <clears throat> these are all the sorts of people who can invite the host back to their house later, who can repay the favor of his hospitality. And if he's the leader of the Pharisees, if places around the table reflects your status in community, and he's invited all the other important people, this is a key opportunity for those guests to find a higher place at the table, to gain standing in the community. And more than a few of them will leave with a little bit higher status which means they'll owe that host a favor in one way or another. This isn't hospitality. He's cementing his place as the leader of the pack. He's buying favors back from the other important and wealthy people in the community. Don't invite those kinds of people, Jesus says. Instead, if you want to practice hospitality, the kind of hospitality God practices with us, invite the poor and the crippled and the lame and the blind, the sorts of people who could never repay you. Then you'll receive your reward when the just are resurrected. Don't invite people who can pay you back. Grace that incurs a debt is not grace. Invite those who can't pay you back. Now here's the point where we have to acknowledge the pandemic in the room. Because studying this passage was difficult, I had to come to grips this week with a sense of resentment and ache inside of saying, Jesus, I would love to invite anyone over at this point for a meal. It's been 10 months. I'll take friends, but I'll take anyone. Let them come over. Let's have a celebration together. We're living in a strange season, 
And it's important to acknowledge, as we look at a story about hospitality, that we're not able to do any hosting and invite anyone over right now, and there's pain in that for many of us. A friend of a friend shared this week that they haven't been able to hug their mother in 10 months. There's pain. There's longing. There is an ache within us, a hunger to host and to gather. But that ache can tell us something important about hospitality too. That ache, I think God wants to use to do two things in us right now. The first is to recognize that ache as a sign, as a symbol of our deeper ache for God's heavenly banquet that we will celebrate when Jesus finally returns. As Christians, it's easy to get stuck down in the everyday circumstances of our lives and forget what we are hoping and waiting for, something so much greater and better. You know, the discipline of fasting involves not consuming things for a while, to remember at a deeper level that we do not live on bread alone, but on every word that comes from the mouth of God. That we aren't just hungry for food, but that each hunger pang points us to a deeper hunger for God and God's presence every moment of every day. So may this ache too, to gather together, to celebrate, to host Point us deeper in, draw our attention to the deeper ache for God's kingdom to come among us. That's the first thing I think God wants to do with that ache. The second thing I think God is inviting us into is to see that ache right now as a reminder of what those among us feel as they hunger and thirst for righteousness to remember the ache of the poor and crippled, the lame and the blind, the ache of the hungry, the lonely, the refugee and homeless, the longing of the prisoner and the sick, the bullied and the marginalized, to remember that as we are sad that we can't gather with others to celebrate and watch the Super Bowl, there are friends and neighbors among us who never get invited to that party that ache not just because of a pandemic, but every day, every year. God is our generous host. And in the generosity of his grace, God welcomes to God's table those who will never be able to repay him. That's us. And Jesus says we should do likewise. We shouldn't only invite to our tables those who can repay us those in whose social circles we already swim. We should invite the poor, the crippled, the lame, and the blind. We're called to be as generous and gracious to others as God has been with us, forgiving as we've been forgiven, extending God's gifts out to others. Friends, the world is aching to be invited to the banquet. It's hungering and thirsting, groaning and calling out for the food of God's kingdom to be invited to the party, to be welcomed into delight and rejoicing and community around God's table. We must remember that the Bible ends in Revelation 22 with an invitation 
the Spirit and the Bride say, Come. And let all who hear say, Come. Let everyone who thirsts come. Let anyone who wishes take the water of life as a gift. As we gather around God's table in just a moment, the table of abundant generosity and grace, the table is set. We're invited to come. So how will you come? And who will you invite along? In the name of the Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. Amen.